Hello, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 5, One Who Makes Beautiful Things. A look at the life and times of King Sneferu, Lord of the Two Lands, builder of great monuments. Last time, we saw how King Netjeriket, also known as Djosa, and his architect Imhotep commissioned the world's first pyramid monument, the Step Pyramid of Saqqara, a marvel of engineering, now dominated the skyline of Egypt's capital city. Little did Djosa know that within just 50 years, his work would be surpassed. Twice. The year was 2620 BCE, approximately. The third dynasty, which had flourished under King Netjeriket Djoser and his successors, was now fading away. It had been 60 years since work started on the Steppe Pyramid. Now, generations later, a new ruler sought to achieve something as great as his predecessor. The new king of Egypt was named Seneferu. Seneferu, or Sneferu, means one who makes beautiful things. How true that name was. King Sneferu would rule for about 45 years or so, and in his time, wonderful monuments would rise in the Nile Valley. Sneferu came to power at a time when the Egyptian state was rapidly developing, and the country was growing richer. Thanks to decades of political stability, along with some environmental blessings, the people of Egypt were prospering at this time. The population was growing, farms were expanding, and tax revenues were increasing. Put together, the new king and his government could look out on a wealthy kingdom and make plans for how to use it. Realistically, the king probably had one priority above all, starting work on his royal tomb. Tombs were expensive, they took years to build, and countless hours of labour. If Sneferu wanted a splendid monument like his ancestors, he would need to start the project now. So, that's what he did. Soon after his ascent, Sneferu began work on his royal tomb. What kind would it be? Well, that was easy. Step pyramids were all the rage, so Sneferu would have a step pyramid. The question of location, though, that could be a bit trickier. You wanted something close to the capital, but still separate enough that it could be seen as unique, enduring on its own merits. For this, the perfect location soon became clear. Sneferu would build his tomb at Meidum. Meidum is a region south of Cairo, near the massive oasis called Fayum, which is that green leaf shape that sticks out westward from the Nile Valley. The Fayum area was fertile and central, a perfect location for a king whose territory now extended for a thousand miles in every direction. So, at Meidum, the king chose a site for his grand steppe pyramid. This monument was an interesting one. The Pyramid of Meidum is one of Egypt's first architectural wonders. Not because it's particularly huge, but because it reveals a lot about how pyramids were designed and planned during the early phases. If you look at the Steppe Pyramid of Djoser and the Great Pyramid of Khufu, you may ask yourself, how did they get from the first to the second? Well, Meidum and others like it provide the clues for how Egyptians developed the true pyramid form. Let's just say it took a few tries. 
The Meidum Pyramid was laid out on an impressive scale, 144 metres long on each side, or 472 feet, and 92 metres tall, 301 feet. The Pyramid of Sneferu was 50% taller than the Steppe Pyramid of Djoser, built at a much steeper angle. Towering above the skyline, the pyramid would have been visible from the Nile, and from many miles around. How did it all start? The work began at a quarry about five kilometres north of the building site. Here, a wide plateau of limestone provided a good base of operations. At this chalky, dusty space, the workers began their project. The ancients used strings, red ink, and wooden poles to plan their quarrying. They used the string dipped in the ink to mark out the grid, the lines that they would use to chisel the stone. I've excavated on Egyptian temples, and in some places you can still see the stains of that red ink, the lines which architects used for 2,000 years to plan the most impressive monuments. Those things are, to me, absolutely amazing. You can see where the ancient person placed their tool in order to do their work. It's so cool. When the grid was ready, the quarrymen started digging. Their tools were chisels made of a dense arsenical copper, which is stronger than regular copper and occurs naturally in the deserts east of the Nile. They also used heavy stone mallets, or pounders, to dig fissures in the stones and pry them forth. The blocks came out in large rectangles, rough and unfinished, and they could weigh several tons. To some, that might seem insurmountable. To the Egyptians, it was a simple task, if you knew how to work. When the block was chiselled out, the men lashed ropes around it and laboriously dragged it down to the edge of the Nile River. On the riverbank, great barges waited, wide and flat boats ready to carry tons of stone up the river. The blocks were hauled up the gangplanks onto the deck, and then the oarsmen put their backs to the poles. The barges made their way up the Nile. Five kilometres later, 3.1 miles, the barge arrived at Meidum, and the workers unloaded the stones once more. The ropes were lashed up again, the arms and backs went back to work, and the hauling resumed. Soon, the stones arrived at the pyramid construction site. The labourers hauled their stones atop wooden sleds towards the pyramid. As they approached, they began to ascend large earthen ramps, which led to the upper surface of the monument. To date, we are not sure how these ramps were organised. They might have run around the pyramid's outside, or directly up to it, perpendicular to the face. I'll come back to that question and the various theories another time. Long story short, Egyptologists are certain that the Egyptians used ramps in some configuration to drag the stones inch by inch up the side of the monument. As the workers hauled their stones, the four men and overseers kept a running tally of the blocks. They marked certain stones which would go to specific locations. How do we know that? Well, when archaeologists began to uncover the Meidum Pyramid, they found that some of the outer blocks were marked with these notes. With a brush dipped in ink, the ancient overseers had written on the blocks, making a note of when they arrived and who brought them to the pyramid. From these markings, which are largely forgotten today, Egyptologists can reconstruct some of the processes which took place on an ancient pyramid construction. One block, for example, mentions, quote, 
year of the 13th occasion, end quote. That's approximately 26 years into Sneferu's reign. So we have a rough timeline for work on the pyramid and how it progressed over the years. Things at Meidum went well for the first phases of construction. Layers of stone began to rise, and each step of the pyramid was completed to an exacting degree. Sixty years after the steppe pyramid of Djoser, Egyptian foremen were pretty experienced in this whole process. Nowadays, work proceeded quickly and mostly painlessly. By 2605 BCE, Sneferu's 15th year on the throne, the pyramid at Meidum was complete in its core layers. It wasn't fully finished, that would come later, but its essential structure was ready. What a sight! A towering step pyramid, the Meidum monument was large and sturdy, a shining example of what could be accomplished with hard work. As far as we can tell, the ancient skills had improved greatly over the past generations. Now, they could complete a larger step pyramid in even less time. For all intents and purposes, it seems like they had mastered the art. What does a craftsman do when they have achieved the rank of master? Do they stop developing? Usually not. Any master worth their salt takes the opportunity to continue perfecting and improving on what they do. The same thing happened with the ancient Egyptians. When the royal architects looked on the Meidum pyramid and marvelled at the mostly finished product, they seemed to have had some ideas. The step pyramid was marvellous, a great accomplishment, but what if they could do better? What if a step pyramid didn't need to be a step pyramid? What if they built something new? Somewhere around year 15, the royal architects went back to the drawing board and began to plan another royal tomb. With the summit of step pyramid construction achieved, it was time to innovate once more. It was time to update the pyramid to a new form. We'll explore that in part 2, but first, the king had other projects to look at. While his architects and labourers were constructing the Meidum monument, Sneferu himself had been taking a look around the kingdom. He was searching for opportunities, and it wasn't long before he found them. Around year 10, while the project at Meidum was still underway, the king had led his army off to war. Surprisingly, in the first 500 years of Egyptian history, we don't know that much about their military activities. Usually, history is full of wars, dramatic conflicts which change societies, and bring glory, quote-unquote, to their participants. Well, the early Egyptians leave only the barest traces of their aggressive military campaigns. Since the time of the first dynasty, back in 3000 BCE, Egyptians have been, presumably, fighting conflicts of some kind every now and again. They had uncontrollable neighbours in Sinai, Libya, and Nubia, and they were always good targets for raiding, and always a threat. The distant lands of Canaan or Palestine were also targets for the more ambitious rulers, but between 3000 and 2600 BCE, there is surprisingly little evidence for Egyptian military activity. That changes with Sneferu, who gives us one of our first detailed records of ancient Egyptians at war. 
In year 10, approximately 2610 BCE, King Sneferu led his first campaign to a foreign land. He went south, travelling up the River Nile into the lands we now call Sudan. Back then, it may have been called Ta-Nehesiu, the land of the bowmen. Egyptologists often refer to this area as Nubia and the people as Nubians. But that implies that they were a single, united people, which really wasn't the case this early in history. As far as archaeology has revealed, the early Nubians were pastoralists, agricultural and nomadic groups who moved around the lands south of Egypt. Organised in small clans or tribes, the ancient Nubians exploited the Nile Valley, the desert hunting grounds, and the rich gold mines for sources of wealth. They were accomplished, but they didn't have a centralised kingdom just yet. This made them vulnerable, and to the Egyptians, the Nubians were easy prey. King Sneferu led an army of his warriors upriver, attacking the Nubian tribes and wreaking havoc among them. A small trace of this campaign survives in hieroglyphs, and Sneferu described it thus, quote, Hacking up the Nubians, bringing back 7,000 captives, plus 200,000 cattle and herds of animals. End quote. 7,000 captives, 200,000 livestock. The plundering was huge, a massive assault on Nubian livelihoods and society. Granted, Sneferu is probably exaggerating the numbers a bit, but even so, this campaign must have been a serious blow to many communities. One of the primary resources of this region was cattle, movable wealth that could be used in a variety of ways. Taking 200,000 livestock, even half that number, would probably have left many families destitute. Then again, perhaps Sneferu took the families themselves carrying huge sections of the population off into bondage. We like to imagine Egypt in peaceful terms, palm trees rustling in the breeze, the Nile River flowing smoothly past farmers, builders working on monuments, all free of organised military violence. The reality is, ancient kings were aggressive and warlike people. They attacked their neighbours, stole whatever goods they wanted, and carried subjects away to serve them back at home. Under a principle of might makes right, kings like Sneferu were the bane of their neighbours. Taking so many captives must have been a huge challenge for the Egyptians. They had to feed these people, clothe them, give them housing, and find some purpose for them in the Nile Valley. What did the Egyptians do with these captives? Well, we may actually have an answer. Not long after his Nubian campaign, Sneferu founded a number of new estates. The kings set up new farming communities, about 35 of them, and he also established 122 new cattle ranches. So many estates would have required a huge number of people. Well, the king had a ready supply of hands, prisoners waiting for some kind of purpose. It's a good bet that having taken thousands of captives, King Sneferu put these foreigners to work, feeding the vast needs of his kingdom. As we get into the Pyramid Age, one of the most important questions is, how did the Egyptians pay for those enormous monuments? Well, we may have an answer in records like this, 
Sneferu took captives from nearby regions, and used them to set up new farms and estates. Over time, these farms would have grown, become more productive, and it wouldn't be long before the cattle ranches and agricultural plantations supplied huge quantities of food to the massive labour force which worked on the pyramid. We also have to consider the idea that Nubian slaves were responsible for much of the work on the pyramids themselves. Although we know about certain teams working on these projects, the actual individuals are a bit more mysterious. So Egyptians and Nubians, and perhaps Libyans or Canaanites, might have mingled in the workforce. After all, a labourer is a labourer, regardless of where he comes from. Slavery in ancient Egypt is a big topic, and this early in history, we really don't have enough material to talk about it. I'll come back to slavery later on in our story. For now, it's enough to know that Sneferu, the pyramid builder, was also a warlord. His campaigns were incredibly lucrative for the kingdom, and up and down the Nile, captive foreigners helped to build his Egypt. Pretty soon, work at the Meidum Pyramid began to slow down. The royal tomb was almost finished, and it was impressive. A mighty step pyramid rose up over the plains, dominating its horizon. Within, secret chambers would hold the royal burial. It was a worthy monument indeed. Sneferu was now coming to his fifteenth year on the throne. He was still young, perhaps as young as twenty-five, and his realm was prosperous. What do young men with a lot of wealth do? Well, Sneferu did exactly what you might expect. He spent that wealth in a big way. Pretty soon, another pyramid was underway, and the world of architectural development would change forever. The year was 2605 BCE, approximately. It was regnal year 15 under the majesty of Sneferu, king of Upper and Lower Egypt. Sneferu, the one who makes beautiful things, was sitting pretty. His country was wealthy, his tomb was nearly complete, his people were numerous, and his territories secure. As a king, Sneferu's achievements were quite satisfactory. Had he died right then and there, he would have been remembered as a worthy member of the royal lineage. But very few monarchs are ever satisfied with worthy. As you can imagine, Sneferu, young, rich and powerful, wanted to go further. Pretty soon, the king was meeting with his architects, and ideas were flowing about how to improve on the pyramid as a concept. While the work teams were still finishing off the step pyramid at Meidum, Sneferu's architects proposed something else. Clearly, they had mastered the art of building step pyramids. But what if they could do better? What if, and bear with me on this, what if they built a second, different pyramid? To date, no king had successfully completed two tombs in one reign. Perhaps they didn't see the point, but no one had tried it as far as we can tell. Sneferu, we can imagine, might have been intrigued. What exactly did his architect suggest? The royal servant bowed low and held out a carefully prepared scroll of papyrus. Sneferu unfurled it and gazed upon a most curious proposal. Triangles. 
The architect planned a monument of giant triangles. Smooth on the sides like a steep ramp, the pyramid would rise to a sharp point at the top. It would conceal a tomb like the step pyramids, but it would be a radical reinvention of the basic concept. This architect, whoever he was, had designed the first true pyramid. What followed was a remarkable structure, and a slightly bizarre one too. Before work could begin, the planners needed to choose a site. Meidum might work, but that was already home to Seneferu's first monument. Saqqara was another option, but the steppe pyramid of Djoser dominated that region. They needed somewhere new, somewhere with a good source of stone, and no pre-existing monuments that might overshadow the new project. Looking around, they settled on a place that we call Dashur. Dashur is just south of Saqqara. You could walk there from the steppe pyramid if you wanted to. But it's far enough away that the pyramids stand on their own and don't have to compete for visibility. And I think Sneferu was really interested in being visible. The new pyramid would rise at an angle of 55 degrees, climbing steeply towards an apex in the centre. When finished, the monument would be enormous, towering over the desert and Nile Valley like a mountain. On its sides, the smooth angles would slope downward like the rays of the sun. This pyramid was clearly something different in its design. The work teams and labourers gathered at Dashur, many of them veterans of the earlier monuments. They were experienced, capable and gung-ho. With a new project and a whole new design, the men could anticipate a great deal of consistent, reliable work. Soon, the new monument was underway. Once again, the labour teams quarried limestone from a nearby source and hauled the rough stones over to the building site. If you look at satellite imagery today, you can actually see where the quarries were located and the long ramps that the Egyptians used to bring the stones up. The quarry men would chisel rough blocks out of the ground, lever them onto sleds, and then haul them to the pyramids. There, masons polished the stones up a bit, made them smooth and the workers dragged them into place on the growing base of the pyramid. Funnily enough, they didn't do a particularly careful job. There is a popular vision of the Egyptian pyramids as being meticulous, precise monuments. That's true in some cases, but a couple of them are downright sloppy. This pyramid is one of those. If you look closely at the inner layers, you'll see that many of the blocks have noticeable gaps between them. Instead of nestling each stone tightly packed against one another, the builders seem to have shoved them roughly into place, and then filled the gaps in with a mix of debris and mortar. It is a remarkably slapdash approach, one that would cost them in the long run. Years went by, and the pyramid rose higher and higher. When it reached about halfway up, the architects discovered a problem. The monument was now incredibly large, and it was only going to get larger. But all of that stone was starting to weigh a lot, and the combined mass of the pyramid was pressing down into the ground. Ground that could not really support it. Soon, cracks were appearing in the masonry. The pyramid was not going to hold. I would love to have been a fly on the wall on the day that Sneferu or his architect came into the pyramid chambers and saw that cracks were developing. I can only assume that a lump of lead formed in their stomach, and they beat a hasty retreat from the monument. Even today, going down into this pyramid is just a little bit nerve-wracking. 
all that stone overhead, and you know damn well the structure is slightly unstable. It's kind of a rush. The architects evacuated, and the work halted while they decided what to do. They didn't want to abandon this monument, they had come too far. So how could they reduce the weight and alleviate some of the pressure? The solution was clever, that's for sure. The architects went back to the drawing board and reworked the angle of the pyramid. From its original 55 degrees, they lowered the slope to 43. It was gentler and would require less stone to reach the top. In theory, this should hold. With a solution in hand, the mathematicians returned to the site and work resumed on the pyramid. Over the next three or four years, this pyramid structure was finished off at a new, shallower angle. When completed, this gave the monument a strange profile. It bent halfway up like a broken mountain. When completed, the new pyramid stood 105 meters tall, 345 feet. It was the tallest pyramid yet built, but in many respects, it was a failure. The bent pyramid of Sneferu, located at Dashur, is a remarkable piece of ancient engineering. On the one hand, it is an intriguing sight. It has a unique profile, and the story of its construction is one of the more fascinating in the record. Also, it is a rare phenomenon in science, a genuine missing link between an earlier tradition and what came after. Altogether, the Bent Pyramid is remarkable. It is actually my favourite out of all the Old Kingdom monuments. Although this pyramid was an unsatisfactory work, and Sneferu did not choose it for his tomb, it was still finished as much as possible. The pyramid had a burial chamber, a chapel on one side for worship, and a large wall surrounding the site. It also had another new feature, which hadn't been done before. On the southern side of the monument, a second, smaller pyramid was constructed as well. This satellite pyramid was tiny, just 26 meters tall, or 85 feet. It had a burial chamber that was too small for a human burial. So this might have been intended to hold a statue of the king, a way to protect his soul for eternity. The Bent Pyramid has one last feature that is remarkable and puzzling. It is unique for the fact that it has two burial chambers. Within the core masonry of the pyramid, two separate chambers were prepared for burials or goods of the king. The chambers are accessed from different passages, one in the western side, one in the northern, and they were built entirely separately. When the two were completed, the builders tunneled a passageway between them, connecting the two burial spaces to one another. This is a strange feature, and it has not yet been fully explained. So the Bent Pyramid of Sneferu was complete. Was it satisfactory? No. I mean, it wasn't a total disaster, but the awkward change in angle, and the instability of the overall structure, meant it was no longer an ideal place to bury the body of the king. Sneferu had to choose. Would he use this pyramid for his tomb, or go back to the earlier one at Maidum? Either way, it was a difficult decision. A now outdated step pyramid, or an imperfect true pyramid? What would he do? As you may expect, Sneferu did the only thing he could. He tried a third pyramid. Around year 25, the king ordered that another monument begin just up the road from the Bent Pyramid. We will explore this third monument, and other aspects of Sneferu's reign, in chapter 2 of this episode. Grab a glass of wine, 
check up on your administrative records. After all, your eternal tomb is not going to fund itself. I'll see you soon after the break. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. The year was 1595 BCE, regnal year 25 under the majesty of Sneferu, king of Upper and Lower Egypt. The ruler was now 35 to 40 years old approximately. His power was secure, his kingdom fabulously wealthy, his monuments were second to none. The king had already commissioned two major pyramids at Meidum and Dashur. The first one, a step pyramid, was essentially complete. The second, unfortunately, had not gone according to plan. Now, 25 years into his reign, Sneferu needed to try again. Pretty soon, the king would begin a third pyramid. Before we explore yet another monument, I want to take a quick look at other parts of Sneferu's kingdom. Buildings are fascinating, but what about people? What else was happening in the realm of Egypt? To begin with, we do know a few things about Sneferu's family. His wife was probably a woman named Hetep Heres. Hetep Heres, or She Satisfies Horus, is an enigma. We know that she was mother to Sneferu's successor, but we don't know for certain that she was his wife. Hetep Heres doesn't carry the title of King's Wife on any of her artifacts, so she's a bit of a mystery. We do know that she was part of the royal bloodline, but where does she sit in the family tree? Well, there are a lot of question marks today. Hetep Heres is best known for her remarkable burial, which was discovered partly intact in the necropolis of Giza. We say partly intact because her body was missing, but the tomb still held many grave goods belonging to the lady. Her canopic jars, for instance, containing some of her vital organs, were still there along with a suite of furniture buried alongside. That furniture, made of wood and gold, was preserved, protected, and now resides in the Cairo Museum. 
It is a beautiful collection, which includes objects like a bed made of wood, gold, and leather. The bed is about 177 centimeters long, 5 feet 9 inches, suggesting that Hete Peres was quite tall, or that she liked a big, spacious bed to stretch out in. Imagine a queen of the Nile reclining on a soft leather bed, the very image of splendor in ancient Egypt. Hetep Heres also left behind a simple but elegant chair, made of wood and gold. This was a carrying chair which was held on long poles, also wood and gold, and supported by servants. The queen would sit in this chair and be carried around, viewing perhaps the gardens or the monuments which were erected in her day. We also have a canopy which would have surrounded her bed in the palace. The canopy was a large box frame, open on one side, with poles supporting the edges. The wood of this frame was plated entirely in gold, with hieroglyphs recording Hetep Heres' name and titles. It is a ludicrously ornate piece. We also have smaller pieces, like a headrest made of wood, gold, and silver. The headrest went on the queen's bed. She would lie on her side with the headrest supporting her neck, and her head on the other side. This is still used in some parts of Eastern and Central Africa today. Hetep Heres' headrest is about 20 centimeters tall, quite large for this sort of piece. That might encourage us to view the queen as a tall woman with broad shoulders. Otherwise, a 20 centimeter high pillow sounds a little bit uncomfortable. Finally, the furniture also included a small box for the curtains which Hetep Heres would have used on her canopy. The curtains had disintegrated long ago, but the box is intact. It is covered with hieroglyphs and painted shapes, including the name of Hetep Heres' royal son, King Khufu, heir to Sneferu. This box is beautiful. It's one and a half meters long, over five feet, almost half the length of the grand canopy. You can see pictures on the website. It is gorgeous. A canopy, a curtain box, a carrying chair, a throne, and a bed. These are the earthly remains of a once powerful queen. Hetep Heres, she who satisfies Horus, is a mysterious but fabulous figure in Egyptian history. Thanks to her furniture, we have a glimpse behind the curtain at the life of the royal woman. Sneferu also had two brothers, who played an important role in his government. These men are difficult to identify with certainty, but current scholarship suggests that they were half-brothers of the king, born to secondary wives under his father. These two brothers were named Nefer Ma'at and Ra-Hotep. Nefer Ma'at, or Ma'at is beautiful, was technically older than Sneferu, but he seems to have been born to a concubine or secondary wife. For whatever reason, Sneferu's father chose him, not Nefer Ma'at, as the heir. Which might have been frustrating, but Nefer Ma'at did receive some compensation. Near to the steppe pyramid at Meidum, Nefer Ma'at was allowed to build a large, ornate mastaba. This tomb was decorated in beautiful hieroglyphs and images, showing the man and his family enjoying life in the hereafter. We see Nefer Ma'at overseeing work, traveling around in a carrying chair held by servants, herding animals, and even catching birds to feed his family. The art of Nefer Ma'at's tomb is terribly fragmented today, only pieces survive. But we can tell that Nefer Ma'at went to his grave in a lavish, beautiful space. In fact, 
One scene does survive in good condition, and it shows some of the most beautiful paintings of the period. In a wall fresco, several geese are shown grazing in a clearing. They are painted with bright vivid colours, and have detailed feathers and beautiful shapes. The geese's movements are lifelike and expressive, and you can really see that the artist was studying the birds in order to capture them. Two of the geese peck at the ground, guarding four others who stand in the centre of the scene. Their colours are distinctive and their details gorgeous. To get the full experience, you'll find an image of them on the website. Link in the episode's description. Nefer Ma'at served Sneferu as one of the top officials in the realm. He held the position of Chatti, often translated as vizier or prime minister. In this role, he oversaw high-level disputes, managed royal estates, and ensured that the temples were supplied with resources. Naturally, Nefer Ma'at's job involved a lot of work related to the construction of the pyramids. The vast expense and manpower required for this was within his general oversight. So Nefer Ma'at, largely forgotten today, probably worked hard as a key member of the royal government. When he died, he was immortalised in a beautiful tomb. King Sneferu's other brother was named Ra-Hotep. Ra-Hotep, or Ra is satisfied, was younger than the king and shows up around the middle of the reign. He is best known for the astonishing pair of statues which depict Ra-Hotep and his wife, now in the Cairo Museum. Ra-Hotep and his partner Neferet, or Beautiful, appear in a sculpture that is so lifelike it scared the heck out of the men who discovered it. It is brightly painted, and the eyes were made of rock crystal, which glimmers in the light and gives them a sense of being alive. As you can imagine, stumbling on an image like this in the dark of a tomb might have been quite frightening. The statue depicts the couple seated on thrones, staring into eternity. Rahotep has skin of a red-brown, Neferet is a milky beige. These colours reflect the fashions of the elite. Lighter skin suggested you were wealthy and didn't have to spend much time outside. We see similar ideas all over the world even today. The lighter your skin, the more affluent your lifestyle. Same principle in antiquity. Probably not realistic to how they actually looked though. Rahotep wears a trim pointy moustache, his hair is cropped short. Neferet, meanwhile, wears a heavy black wig and a long white robe which wraps around her body. Both of them, man and woman, have trim healthy physiques, images of youth and strength for all eternity. On their eyes, both statues wear heavy black eyeliner, suitable for the bright summer sun of ancient Egypt. Finally, the statues bear hieroglyphs, naming each individual and listing their titles. Neferet has just one title, Reku Nesut, aka One Who Knows the King. In other words, Neferet's sole claim to fame was her association with the royal household. It's a shame, but there it is. Rahotep served Sneferu in many different roles. Among others, he was greatest of the seers of Heliopolis, meaning he was probably the chief astronomer of the Temple of Ra, and also its high priest. He was also the unique one, greatest of the festival, perhaps indicating that he led important ceremonies and celebrations. Rahotep was also a military man, being the overseer of the expedition and leader of archers or bowmen. 
Rahotep, perhaps, joined some of the expeditions into Nubia which I described earlier. If so, then he was a man of many talents, astronomer, celebrant, and commander, all in one. If those roles have one thing in common, it's the idea of leadership. Rahotep and his brother Nefer Ma'at were typical of the nepotism which Egyptian rulers used at the time. It seems that the royal family, as much as possible, controlled and monopolized different government roles. The upper levels of the administration, like the Chati Vizier or the commanders of troops, were all held by brothers or sons of different kings. As far as we can tell, Old Kingdom Egypt had an incredibly centralized power structure. Government was controlled by one extended family, and none could threaten them. Outside the royal family, we also have evidence for what was happening in the rest of Egypt. Again, many of these records come from royal contexts, but they do reveal some of the things taking place elsewhere. While workers were finishing off the Meidum pyramid, Sneferu summoned his brother Nefer Ma'at and gave him an assignment. A few years previously, Sneferu's artisans had carved him a great ship, a vessel called Adoring the Two Lands. The ship was huge, 100 cubits long, or 52 meters, or 170 feet. It plied the waterways of the Nile, and even sailed into the Mediterranean, bringing timber from distant lands. Well, Sneferu wanted more of these ships. In year 15 or so, King Sneferu commissioned another three massive seagoing vessels. Each would be 100 cubits long, 52 meters, and each would be made of expensive, high-quality wood. Again, one of the ships was called Adoring the Two Lands, so maybe the original had sunk? Who knows? Either way, the king was clearly thinking bigger. The country could afford it, and more trade was good for the palace. So Nefer Ma'at was given the job, and work began on large new ships. The new vessels were intended for ocean trade. They would sail from the royal city, Memphis, and make their way through the waterways of the Nile Delta before emerging onto the coast. From there, they would sail along Sinai and up past Canaan, hugging the shoreline as they went. The journey was slow and dangerous, but well worth it. When they reached the city of Byblos in Lebanon, the king's agents could trade Egyptian goods for high-quality timber. Egypt is not rich in wood. The climate doesn't support forests, and most of the trees are palm trees, which aren't great for building large objects. To build enormous monuments, to travel and trade, the royal palace needed a constant supply of strong, workable wood. The forests of Lebanon became their source. For as long as Egypt had kings, they traded as much as possible with the people who lived in Lebanon. The city of Byblos, or Jabal, was the most important trading port in the whole Canaanite Syrian region. With few competitors, Byblos acted as the hub for trade flowing from the Middle East to the Mediterranean, to Egypt and to Turkey. Byblos sat in a good spot, and in the countryside, it was home to abundant forests of good quality wood. Because of this, Egyptian kings worked hard to keep Byblos on their side. When Sneferu ordered his three mighty ships, he may have been hoping to increase trade with Lebanon. We're not certain, but such massive ships seem extravagant if you're only using them on the Nile. Plus, one of the ships, adoring the two lands, 
was specifically described as being made of cedar wood. Cedar is the primary timber in Byblos, so it's a good bet that the Egyptian ships were sailing all the way to Lebanon on a regular basis. They traded whatever they could, copper, gold, turquoise and food, for high quality lumber. Once they brought it back, the king used that wood to build more ships, bigger and better. Then the whole cycle began again. Egyptian trade is one of my favourite things to learn about. Back in episode 1, The Two Lands, I mentioned how much our understanding of trade has grown in the past 30 years. Thanks to more archaeological research, we have a clearer and more detailed understanding of how the Egyptians and other ancient peoples were interacting with one another. Trade was far more common than we ever could have anticipated. I don't know about you, but I think that is awesome. Sneferu's woodcarvers set to work, his shipwrights plied their trade. And by the time his twentieth year rolled around, citizens of the capital must have been very used to the sight of huge ships loaded with goods plying the waterways of the Nile. From far and wide, traders and navigators were coming to Egypt. It was an incredibly prosperous time. So we know about the ships, massive sailing boats of good quality timber, and we know about the wars, the campaigns into foreign lands which netted booty, captives, and livestock for the state. We know about the royal family, and also the pyramids, and the many aspects of their construction. But there are still some tiny stories that Sneferu's Egypt left behind. They're minor, but they're fascinating in their own little ways. For example, we know that Sneferu expanded his royal palace by building new gates. He called these gates the Red Crown and White Crown of Sneferu, related to the two lands of Egypt. The gateways included large doors made of cedar wood, probably the result of that trade with Lebanon. We also know that Sneferu commissioned a golden statue of himself, which he called, quote, fashioning a gold statue of the Horus Neb Ma'at inscribing the hieroglyphs on it. End quote. Neb Ma'at is the Horus name of Sneferu, and it simply means Ma'at is Lord. Gold statues are rare in the Old Kingdom, mostly because they might have been stolen and melted down. A record like this gives us a window into the vast wealth which Sneferu was probably playing with. His kingdom was producing huge resources, and thanks to his violent wars, the king could use foreign gold to glorify his own name. We don't know if he was the first king to do this, but Sneferu's splendour has become famous. Statues like this are just the tip of a glittering golden iceberg. Finally, we now know that the Egyptians were keeping regular, detailed records of the Nile flood. The annual inundation, when the Nile rose and overflowed its banks, nourished the farmland and made Egypt fertile. The annual flood was the life of the state, and from an early period, the Egyptians had been measuring it. Well, under Sneferu, we actually have some of those records surviving today. The Nile flood under Sneferu was usually quite regular, but it still fluctuated. Early in the rain, we have records of the inundation reaching... Quote, three cubits, five palms in height. End quote. A cubit is about 52 centimeters or 21 inches. A palm is about 7 centimeters. So a flood of three cubits, five palms, is about equal to 175 centimeters or 5 foot 8 above the regular level. That's a good height, taller than the average Egyptian. 
In those years, the Nile would have flooded the fields, depositing a rich layer of silt and mud for the next cycle of growth. Of course, there were some lean years. Around year 12, the flood reached a measly 2 cubits and 2 fingers. That's about 108 centimetres, 40% less than the other years. Not a good time, and it probably reduced the harvest for a while. Then there was a great year, a time when the Nile flood reached 5 cubits, 1 palm, and 1 finger. That's 260 centimetres, 8 feet and 6 inches. This was a massive flood that probably covered the entire farmland, and perhaps even reached the desert. In that year, the fertilisation was immense. These miscellaneous records might seem obscure or dull, but they're quite valuable. They give us glimpses at the economic wealth of the kingdom, how the Egyptians were using resources that they obtained in different contexts. Trading with Lebanon? Use the wood for ships or palace doors. Raiding Nubians? Take their gold and use it for statues. Planning for the harvest? Don't worry, the Nile flood was excellent this year. The granaries should be full. All these little hints help us piece together how the Egyptians were able to build the massive pyramids which dominate this time period. With so much wealth, including slaves, they could sustain extensive projects for years at a time. The more productive the farms, the more the population would grow. The more the population grew, the more workers were available. The more workers you had, the more stone you could quarry, and faster. Thus, from lines on a page to a structure in stone, a pyramid could rise in a very short time. This is what happened with the next phase of Sneferu's building. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Throughout Egypt, goods and trade flowed richly. The wealthy elites benefited handsomely. The poor remained as they always had been, poor. Trade in the ancient world tended to benefit the elite more than anyone else. If a poor man wanted to get ahead, his best chance was to contribute work to the king's great monuments. There, he could expect steady rations, occasional bonus payments, and a degree of spiritual reward that was beyond most people. It's time to return to the pyramid field. The royal architects, who had done a great job at Meidum and a needs-improvement job at Dashur, were about to take another commission. Around 1595 BCE, year 25 under Sneferu, the king issued one more job. 
build a third pyramid, and this time, get it right. In 1595, the architects set to work on a new pyramid. Once again, it was located at Dashur, a couple of kilometres north of the Bent Pyramid. This new monument, which we call the Red Pyramid, would be the final attempt at making a smooth-sided monument, one that was perfect in its design. The architects began their planning. The third pyramid was going to be massive, 220 metres long on each side, compared to 188 metres for the Bent Pyramid. That's 722 feet long. They were clearly thinking bigger than ever before, and more perfect in every respect. The Red Pyramid rises to a height of 105 metres, or 345 feet. It's the same height as the Bent Pyramid, but because it's larger on the ground, the Red Pyramid has a more gentle slope on the sides. The architects learned their lesson from before, and had reduced the angle from 55 degrees down to 43. This lower angle had worked on the upper section of the Bent Pyramid, and now it would serve the entire monument for Sneferu's third attempt. Did it work? Let's find out. Sneferu's labourers quarried limestone west of the pyramid, and then hauled the blocks up the ramps to the site. There, they began to drag them up other ramps to the slowly rising levels of the pyramid itself. Those levels, it seems, rose quite rapidly. Archaeological excavations at the Red Pyramid have revealed a surprising amount about the building process, and about how long it all took to put together. A block at the bottom on one corner marks the day when the labourers installed the first corner block, quote-unquote, of the casing stones. They left a graffito in black ink saying, quote, bringing to earth the western corner. This happened about 30 years into the king's reign. Then, another set of graffiti higher up marks a similar event in year 32 and year 34. So it seems that the first levels of the monument, the largest ones, rose at a reasonably swift pace. The Egyptians built their pyramids in two main phases. First, they layered up the core masonry. Then, they started to place casing stones around the outside. Today, most of the casing stones have gone from the pyramids, as people of later centuries carted them away for their own constructions. They survive on some monuments, like the Bent Pyramid and the Pyramid of Khafre at Giza. That's the sloping smooth part you can see at the top. We assume that the core masonry and the casing stones slightly overlapped. As the inner structure was rising, the lower levels could also receive some of their blocks. That way, the builders didn't need to do the whole thing twice. They could start one phase, let that progress, and then begin the second. This probably gives us a slightly warped sense of how quickly the monuments rose up, but until more evidence comes forward, it's the best information we have. The casing stones are what give the pyramids their smooth, triangular shape. Without the casing, they're just a slightly more intense version of the step pyramid. The casing was the important part, and the Egyptians treated that section differently. The Red Pyramid is a good example of this, because it was never meant to be red exactly. The limestone which makes up the core structure has a reddish tinge, but the casing stones would have been a more milky white type of limestone. That white masonry came from a different quarry, and it was apparently seen as more prestigious. So the Red Pyramid was originally white, but over the centuries, those casing stones have been removed, 
exposing the reddish core within. It's only thanks to archaeologists that we have any idea of what it originally looked like. Speaking of archaeology, the Red Pyramid offers up one unique feature. In the sands around the pyramid, excavators in the 1980s found fragments of the original block which capped the top of the pyramid. This capstone was a single piece of high-quality white limestone. It was shaped like a miniature pyramid and polished smooth. The capstone was found in pieces at the base of the monument where stone robbers had discarded it as useless long ago. Working carefully, archaeologist Rainer Stadelman was able to reconstruct it and it now stands on a special podium. You can go visit it and see how the pyramid top would have looked once upon a time. You may have heard that the Egyptian pyramids were originally capped with gold. Well, this is still a bit of a question mark. Only one capstone has been found, and that was simply limestone. So if there was gold originally, it had been stripped off by whoever took the capstone from the top. Most importantly though, the capstone doesn't seem to have nail holes, which you would expect from having something like gold hammered onto it. So we're still in the dark on this particular question, and for now, there's no hard evidence that the pyramids were ever capped with golden metal. Which is a shame, it does sound awesome, but it would be hard to protect something like that, even for a few years, much less centuries. Occam's razor suggests that even if the pyramids did have golden peaks, they probably didn't last that way for very long. The Red Pyramid took approximately 12 to 15 years to complete. But complete it they did, and when it was done, the monument was a grand achievement in architecture. It rose 105 metres high above the desert, smooth sides all the way. Around the perimeter, a high wall enclosed the monument. Within, a secret burial chamber held the sarcophagus of the king. That sarcophagus is gone now, stolen or broken long ago, but fragments of a human body were once found in the burial chamber. Were those Sneferu's remains? We'll never know. The Red Pyramid stands tall as the first true pyramid in Egypt's history. It may not be the largest or the most complex, but that doesn't matter. The Red Pyramid is the beginning of the most magnificent building projects of the age. Almost twice as tall as the Step Pyramid, and more perfect in its design, the Red Pyramid was the greatest accomplishment in Egyptian architecture. From here on out, the pyramid as a concept was perfected. There is one aspect of the Red Pyramid that is less impressive than the earlier ones. You see, King Djoser's great monument had sat within a vast complex, a sacred space filled with shrines and buildings for the worship of gods and king. From temples to granaries, shrines to courtyards, the earlier step pyramid had a more elaborate and functional set of accessories. By comparison, the red pyramid is quite simple. There's the pyramid itself, a wall around the perimeter, and a small temple on the eastern side of the monument. That's it. Although it is a perfect tomb, the red pyramid is far less complex than its earlier ancestor. Still, that's not a bad thing. Sometimes, simplicity is best, and when you gaze on the Red Pyramid today, it's hard not to be awed by the beauty of this perfect structure.
King Snafaru did not live to see his Red Pyramid completed. The monument was mostly finished, but the final work would be left to his successor. That new king's name was Khufu, and he was destined for a level of fame beyond any that Snefru could conceive. Although he is somewhat forgotten, Egyptologists recognise Snefru as the greatest pyramid builder of all time. Although the Great Pyramid gets the glory, it is actually Snefru who commissioned more elaborate projects, and his monuments include a greater quantity of stone overall than even the largest pyramid. Over 45 years of rule, millions of tons and countless labour hours combined to produce an immense resume of architectural work. More importantly, the four decades of Snefru's rule are vital to understanding how the Egyptians developed their most famous monuments. When he ascended the throne, step pyramids were the chosen form. By the time he died, these had given way to the true pyramid, an architectural marvel and a fascinating structure. Snefru's legacy is untouchable. To the Egyptians, he was everything a king could be. Long reign, blessed by the gods? Check. Successful military campaigns? Check. Stable government and economy? Check, check. Great buildings and monuments? Check, check, check. The importance of King Sneferu cannot be overstated. While we don't know much about him personally, we can say that he was a significant member of the royal lineage. He had a powerful impact on the state as it developed. Looking back, Sneferu's reign seems to mark a turning point. What came next was beyond anything Egyptians had seen before. On the next episode of the History of Egypt podcast, it's time for the big one, the grandest pyramid of all. In episode 6, we meet King Khufu and see how the empty site of Giza became host to the vast, impenetrable bulk of the Great Pyramid. That's episode 6, The Greatest Pyramid, coming in two weeks. See you soon.